Hello and welcome to a new nation, the podcast that discusses the ideas that matter. Uh, I'm my name is Nathan Sparling, and I'm delighted to be joined by my wonderful co-host Nick Ward. Hello, my name is Nick Ward, and um, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Nathan. As it's the pleasure host, as always. Um, people may notice that we do not have any special guests this week. Wait, what, what? Why are you so happy about that? Um, I think it's, we. It's nice having guests. It mixes things up. I'm just glad we're not talking about the US election anymore. That is true. After three election special <laughs> episodes, I feel like our special guest, Ollie, had also had enough of talking about yes. the US election. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was amazing. Um, and if you've not listened to our US election episodes, definitely worth a listen to. You get the full story arc from, from the start before we knew anything that happened. Right in the middle when we, we were, oh, there was so much uncertainty. In the, and then at the end, I mean, we still actually don't really know what's happened, but we've concluded our US election special. We've decided what's happened. And what's happened is that <laughs> Joe called, Biden has won. And we called it first. Did we call it first? I, well, no, I don't think so. Oh. Um, before we get cracking any further on, it might be worth just um, stating, as we always do at the start of the podcast, that the views that we express are not those of our employers. Sometimes they're not even our views. Um, we often, all... <laughs> often not my own views. Like I, you know, I love playing in that sort of devil's advocate position and just being very difficult, as Nathan knows. Um, yes, so just that's why over. if you're watching on YouTube, you can see me roll my eyes. Always, constantly. <laughs> um, but yes, they're sometimes not our views. Um, often they are, but don't hold them against us. It's all in the name of debate, discussion um, and conversation. And we'd love you to join in the conversation too. So please do tweet us at A New Nation Pod, or you can find us on Facebook or our email address will be in the description um, below. Um, and today we're going to have a bumper news special. We've not really talked about the news for like two weeks. Nothing's um, happened. Everything's so, been chill. What are you on about? What news is there? Everyone's <laughs> just been sleeping and watching America. It's, that's it. It's definitely what it felt like I did for <laughs> two weeks. But all these big bits of news things kept sort of getting dropped. Yeah. And I, and I felt like we just, none of us were responding appropriately. It's because everyone was watching CNN and nobody was watching BBC News. <laughs> it's, it's so true. It, the, my favourite one that got dropped, which wasn't on our list of things to talk about, I'm just going to throw it in there anyway, mm, is, the gover- is the government um, go backtracking on the Marcus Rashford um, yes, of course. School meal stuff, and suddenly there's going to be money, and kids are going to get fed, and you know well, they backtracked on quite a lot in the last couple of weeks. You know, they backtracked on 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 feeding children, which feels like you know a really thanks <laughs> like for not no being evil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well they've, done. They've backtracked on weekly testing for the NHS and care staff. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's been quite a few um, U turns that we've seen. And and maybe they're they're grateful that everyone else is watching CNN. It's, it's I, I do find like a, a backtrack quite an interesting one, a turnaround quite an interesting one because it's it must be a difficult thing. Mm. So do you, if you're going to change your mind, do you just sort of slip it out, hope no one notices? But then what's the point of changing your mind if no one notices? So surely then you're like, oh no, we should make a big a big deal of it. But how do yeah. you make a big deal of it without acknowledging that you were wrong in the first place? I, I think it is a bit of a struggle um, because of the political world that we live in. That it, you know, it's 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 right or wrong almost. You know, it's 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 black or white. Um, and then if you've said black, and your opponents are saying white, then because it's going to be sold as a U-turn as you backing mm. down backtracking the opposition of one it makes you put your heels a bit firmer in the ground and doesn't actually allow for you know change and i think we've seen um a, a lot of the language that you that politicians kind of need to start with is talking about you know not going to get things right or we've seen that a lot in a lot of covid responses was you know setting up that things might change quite rapidly because that's the nature of a a new pandemic um, but we do struggle, I think, with just, you know, the, the Twitter noise, the, the, the approach that we take to politics, which doesn't seem like it allows for the Labour Party to work with the Tories or the Tories to work with the SNP. It's so oppositional, way. isn't yeah. it? It's so us versus them. And the problem is that politicians get themselves, or get themselves there themselves, right? Because they've created that narrative. Mm. And yet the reality of sensible grown-up politics is that 
you know, all of these political parties represent an aspect of the nation and that to get a good solution probably does require some compromise somewhere to move forward. But we've created a political system which really looks down upon compromise and sort of actively discourages it. Even, I would say, in the Scottish electoral system, which, you know, is probably set up to create compromise the most. You know, you shouldn't really be able to get a majority of the SNP have achieved that um, very easily. Mm. And if you get a majority, you still basically can do what you can do in Westminster, which is anything you want. Um, so there's very little reason for the SNP to compromise with Labour. And we saw that recently with them not voting for... Um, so I think Labour put forward a motion about the the tourism sector and basically because it wasn't a government bill because it wasn't generated from there the, the answer was no and the SP voted against it um and obviously Labour were like the SNP want the tourism sector to die which obviously the SNP don't but you know and that and there we go so it's always, it's always that so oh, if you vote against something it means that you you don't support it but yeah. you know that you know I personally it, am, I hate tourism and they're bringing their money and employing our people it's, it's awful how dare they sometimes it's a word that catches these motions out um and you know i know as someone that was an advisor in westminster that took a bit of legislation through that getting that compromise is really difficult mm. um, because sometimes you know words or the, the civil service are often actually more the barrier to some of the, that compromise because words mean things um in the longer term mm. um so words in, in in a bill that might get passed the, the impact of that was more challenging, not so much for the politicians who believed that what should happen should happen, but actually sometimes it's, it's this, the, the officials that are saying, no, we don't want this to happen because that could have ramifications in five, 10 years. Mm. Um, so the, Is, but, but the SNP did, um, did vote with, um, the, with Labour, a Labour amendment to a, to a motion about coronavirus and care homes, I'm, I'm sure, just in the last week. So Yeah, and, and do you know what? I was just thinking, like, is the care review and the, the looking at the National Care Service, is that actually a compromise? Because, you know, Labour in some ways were upset, like, well, the SNP's stolen our idea and this kind of chat. Well, maybe you shouldn't be upset about that. Maybe you should be thrilled. Maybe we should be like, this is great. We're so glad we've convinced you. Let's and, work together to make this awesome. And on the care review, I mean, the former Labour MSP Malcolm Chisholm is on the care review. They couldn't be closer <laughs> to. They couldn't be closer to um, being involved in that. I think, in in any normal sense. But but that was a good tangent to go off on. on yeah, that's not even. It's not on the list, people. It's not on the orange list. <laughs> So what's our first news um, news thing that we're actually going to talk about that we plan well, I think, to talk I, about? I think the first one we have to talk about is the one that's probably upsetting the nation the most that has sent middle-aged mums across the country, um, you know, into absolute despair. Um, and that is that Nicola Adams and Katia are out of Strictly Come Dancing, not because they didn't dance brilliantly, but because Katia's um, come down with coronavirus. Mm. And isn't it sad? I think, you know, Nicola Adams has been such... They've, they've both been amazing champions for the first same-sex couple. Yeah. And they've just been... I think their dancing has been great, but I, I also think the representation that they've brought mm. has been brutal. And I think actually as well... It's so good that it, the first same-sex couple was actually two women and not two men, because I yeah. think... Th that in itself smashes some stereotypes as well. It made me watch Strictly for the first time in, in years. You know, it's been the kind mm. of thing that if it was on in the background, I wouldn't have minded. But I actually made a point of, of watching it this time because I was, um, I, I wanted to support support them and support the, the show because, you know, it's not been without its backlash. Um, you know, yeah. Anne Widdicombe, the, the homophobe in chief. We'll probably get a copyright strike for that now. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> um, you know, like some people have been crit criticizing um, strictly for it, but, you know, I think anybody just had to watch and see how absolutely fun it was for them both to be dancing. And it is a shame that coronavirus is, a, is now a homophobic virus um, and is, is, is stopping the, this, this couple from, from dancing and participating. And it's a shame there's not any backup dancers for, um, for them to dance with because it could have meant that she was still in, still in the show. But I guess 
That's I'm not sure right. if it. I'm not sure if it could have because I think because she's having to isolate. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think actually that's probably why they why they're cut. I just hope that next year that they invite Nicola Adams and Katia back again and yes, they have another go. And actually they go, but you know what? We're not just going to have one same sex couple. We're going to have, have five. Two. <laughs> oh, five, okay. <laughs> this is an interesting insight into me and Nathan's politics. Where I'm like, we'll have two, and it's like seventeen. <laughs> no, I think it is a shame. It was a, a shame to see the. The news, I think um, they're obviously gutted. Mm. Um, and but but what can you do? You know, it's it's it, the show. I, I have to say, watching the show and also the sort of backstage bits that they've been showing about how they've done it through coronavirus, mm. how they've made sure they could put on what is one of the nation's most loved entertainment shows, and um, they've gone above and beyond to make sure that that show looks and feels as normal. Um, as it would have done in in previous years. Obviously, there's not a big audience, but they've still got people there clapping and cheering all the dancers. They've still got Craig Revel Hallwood being awful, um, and they still pop on Bruno Bruno Toglioni, even though he's not there. You know, I met Craig Revel Hallwood once, mm. and uh, he wasn't awful. He was very nice. No, I've heard he's a really nice nice man, and he he staged a version of Chess the Musical, which was one of my oh. favourite versions that I, i've ever seen chess. nothing happens in chess the musical i mean that's a lie but um <laughs> it's written by two geniuses and craig staged it very well with musical right. actors and everything and i saw it at the edinburgh playhouse and i think there was maybe 500 of us there <laughs> the biggest <laughs> theater in scotland <laughs> many a seat um but yeah, I, he, he plays a character like Simon Kimmel plays a character. Um, and people love the show for that mm. as well. Um, although he did give um, Jackie Smith a three, which I thought <gasps> very unwarranted. Jackie Smith, she has become like a bit, you know, I don't think that she really stood out when she was Home Secretary, but she's yeah. one of these people that post-political life has become yeah. a bit of a treasure. Yeah, you know, people, great. yeah, people love her on her, on her podcast radio show. Uh, people really enjoyed her in Strictly. Like, I, I think she's grand. Um, yeah. And I don't think that she was all that keen on identity cards, which is also good. Mm. Um, I think that was a David Blunkett passion. And a yes. Blunkett passion. <laughs> the, um, you know what, though, this does show us is that, um, and this is going to be a very smooth segue, so you'll be very impressed with this, Nathan. Oh. What this does show us is that despite us having news of a vaccine, the virus hasn't gone away. Mm. And, um, you know, the announcement of the vaccine just a couple of days after the presidential election results gives us all hope. That was it a conspiracy against Donald Trump, though? That's what we need to know. Because Donald Trump said they held off on that news till after the election as part of the Democratic steal. The Democratic steal. The thing that I would say to Donald Trump on that is, you didn't fund them. They weren't part of Operation Warp Speed. They can do what they bloody want, mate. And actually, if they did do that, if they did hold off, that was probably them being very sensible because they didn't want to affect the results of the election in any way. And that was probably the mature thing although, to do. Although actually, there's be, I've, I read, I've been reading a couple of articles about Pfizer and their vaccine. One about the lovely couple that are, you know, two of the masterminds behind it that worked on their birthday and anniversary to make oh. it happen. Um, that were migrants from Turkey to Germany. Um, and, you know, proving that, um, that, that freedom of movement and immigration are great things. Um, but Pfizer's chief executive sold over £5 million worth of shares on the day that they announced the vaccine. In I did what see was, that. <laughs> in what was described as a planned sale. Um, but... I, I wondered if, yes, it was okay for them to have had a planned sale, but did they just happen to postpone the announcement until the day of a planned sale so that you'd make lots of money? Well, the, the thing is, right, that's how shares work. Like, you, mm. you sell your shares when the stock price goes up. He he didn't sell the shares with inside knowledge. He didn't do inside trading. It wasn't, I'm going to sell them now because I know our shares are, going to, shares are going to plummet. He waited until the announcement was made sold his shares when it was up like i don't know i'm not that bothered what i am bothered about though 
is you know rich people getting richer all right yeah. <laughs> that's great i'm sure i'm sure he's that's added to his other like 55 million pounds but what i am bothered about is that what a remarkable achievement this is for humanity mm. you know and people were using very grandiose language but i think it's true it is like going to the moon in less than a year mm-hmm. we have managed to create a virus a, a, a vaccine which is 90 percent a virus that was a create, well hopefully well there's some conspiracy theorists that think that is what happened in wuhan in a secret lab but let's not go there um, but you know like we've managed to create something and like anyone that doubts the power of science or anyone that doubts the ability of the human race to achieve what it needs to and what it wants to achieve when it sets its mind to it yeah. you know you're wrong and mm. i just I, I i honestly think this is something that we will hopefully in future say you know this 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 stands up as one of the great one of the great achievements of mankind. Now, the question is, how are we going to get the virus, the vaccine again? How are we going to get the virus to everyone? How are we going to get the vaccine um, distributed fairly? Yeah. What are we this going to do about... Challenge. This is the challenge. And also, because the rich countries mm. have been a bit sneaky... And already ordered it. We've already bought it. Yeah. We've already bought ourselves five. We, we're not, not through the World Health mm. Program, program no. but through our own means. Now, that's great if you are the UK that's rich. And sometimes we forget that we are super rich, mm. but we are super rich. Um, but if you are Malawi, mm-hmm. um, yep. it's more of a significant issue. And also, if you're Malawi, the logistical challenges of distributing a vaccine at like, minus yep. 70 degrees Celsius yep. is... <laughs> like epic mm-hmm. um so where you don't have reliable power sources the temperature is already very high your infrastructure is not necessarily as good so you know i i think we're not there yet because yeah, it, I, it doesn't feel very equitable um you know they've said that it, with this particular virus and there are vac- vaccines <laughs> and there are many other vaccines in the pipeline that will probably yeah. come out with very similar news in, in in a short while um they're all like like you said they need to be stored at certain temperatures they need two or more doses of the vaccine um which is a challenge for producing it i think that pfizer said they can make what something like 50 million by the end of this year which and itself then, is insane yeah which is, is is a great feat of engineering but um you know that's not going to solve the world's ills then next year, I think they're they're estimating 1.2 billion vaccines in in the whole of next year, which we know there's nearly eight mil, eight billion people in in the world. Um, I, I think there needs to be some mechanism to ensure that one, you cannot pay for the vaccine yourself. Bill Gates should not be able to get the vaccine before it's available to to, to other people. Um, I think that I think that I believe anyway, and you might disagree. I think there there needs to be that kind of um, level of of you know this is a, a global pandemic. Um, we we need some sort of parity of, of esteem for people to get it, um, but but the, it also then needs to go to the people that are most at risk of of severe um, cases of of COVID before it goes to to other people. So I, I agree with you, but there's two challenges to what you just said there. So I suppose the first challenge is that that's not how the world is set up, right? So the world is sadly not set up where all nations are equal and have equal resources. And, and the, like the, 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 sh- the challenge is that we have a, a rationed resource, right? There's a resource that has been rationed. And what that means is the more wealth they have more power to engage with that. The second challenge is that the... Um, that Pfizer is a private company. So technically speaking, they can do whatever they want. Now, I, I, I actually tend to agree with you. I think that when, whilst you've got a rationed resource, which is vital for humanity, um, it, the state should take a lead and should decide, or, well, but which state? But like the system should take a lead and try to make it equitable. But how do you do it? Like, I, I, I don't know the function of how you do it because... You know, it's almost like Pfizer is a multinational. It's beyond one country to do that. And the United Nations, sadly, as we know, is a hollowed out institution mm-hmm. where the strong governments of the world, probably since before the Iraq war, have just, you know, ignored it. And I, and I think that um, 
that this is a time where I think we will really miss those multinational, multilateral institutions. Yeah. Um, and I think particularly poorer countries will miss them the most. And hopefully we'll get some leadership from, from Joe Biden when he rejoins the WHO um, yes. and, and leads forward. And the Paris Accords. And the par- well, of course, but we, I, was, I, was, I was referencing COVID more. Yes, than- sorry, I just got excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's all we've, we've got for co- coronavirus today. We, we, I think we've talked about that on every podcast, probably even including our US specials uh, <laughs> in some way. So um, I, I suppose the one other coronavirus thing just to touch on very briefly, um, for those people that are listening, I got a slight eye roll there from Nathan because I think he wants to move on. But the, it, was, it wasn't like a full eye roll. It was like a sort of 20% eye roll, so it's fine. Um, which was um, that Nicola Sturgeon, um, oh, with yeah. the extension of furlough scheme, which we haven't really talked about either. So obviously mm. furlough scheme, which we were told where it's absolutely impossible another to be extended. Um, another, and an epic U-turn, a U-turn mm. costing hundreds of billions of pounds. Um, will now be extended into March, um, which is incredible. It's how it always should have been. And obviously the consequences of these constant U-turns is that there's so many businesses, charities and other organizations that have let people go, made decisions about like whether they should shut or not, you know, people that they should employ, all based on this information. So when you constantly do these U-turns like this, it's actually really damaging and really undermines confidence. But it's it's the right decision because ultimately we, we need um that but she but there's two things with that one the scottish government and i think it was most of the scottish government managed to get the uk government to agree that this they could use it when they wanted as in the scottish yeah. government use it when they wanted which i think is a huge concession mm-hmm. um but the second thing about it is that nicola sturgeon then could stick with her plans because at one point it looked like that she was going to have to abandon the tier system put us all into lockdown in order to be able to access the furlough which i think people would have been very unhappy with but i think also would have been the right decision so we could get access to that and she didn't have to make that call in the end in the end what she decided to do is stick with the tiered system um and quite controversially on i think it was tuesday um she issued the updated tier list where a number of local areas that thought that they would potentially be going down a tier did not. I think this is the challenge, you know. I think that Nicola's been the first minister. Sorry. First name terms, I know. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I think the first minister's been in really a really difficult position because she wants to give people some hope and some, you know, opportunities and for people to see some opportunities. Um, and she did say when she outlined the tier system and what tiers we were all going in that Edinburgh was one of the places where it might be possible early on to move from a three to a two. That's not been possible at the first review. And I think people are like, oh, well, I'm really annoyed because you told me that we were going to go down. She didn't say that in in some respects, but I I do think that's the balancing act that, that she obviously has to play is by trying to give people a bit of a bit of hope that things aren't going to be as you know restricted as, as we are for for a long time but then you know we need to get it right she, she said in one of the briefings this week you know just reducing the restrictions is 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 not just then nothing is going to happen reducing the restrictions means infection rates will go up mm-hmm. so you have to do that at the point in which infection rates are as low as they can be so that it's safe to do that, not just for, you know, people that might become infected, but the hospital capacity um, and other things like, you know, travel between different areas. I think what was interesting... Part of the criticism was that the the decision of how those decisions being made, the date on how those decisions were being made, wasn't published until very, very late. And even when it was put, so it was like there was a graph... But it was about, but it's about, if you look at the original table ah, right, and it was yeah. like the numbers of people per 100,000 and it was like this range of people would be in this tier, this range of people in that tier. Mm. Edinburgh, for example, has been in tier two land now for weeks and is, and is continuing on, the, on a downward trajectory. Only with reference to the number of infections, not necessarily the other considerations, which are you know, where are people? Where are people traveling to? Mm-hmm. And these, these are, I think, some of the, the other considerations. You know, they've just put Fife up to level three because of the proximity to Dundee. 
And it would have then been a bit strange to put Edinburgh down to two because of our proximity to Fife, but also the links between Glasgow and Edinburgh um, for people that, that work. Mm. So I think there's, there's a lot more considerations that have to be made than just the infection number. And that's what she continually said was this is about the, the, the movement of people. And, you know, it's, without forcing people to have, you know, ID checks at the border of Edinburgh or Glasgow, it's about trying to take a holistic approach to that. And, and actually, it's probably more reasonable to try and get everywhere in the central belt down to a point where Edinburgh and other areas might start to be able to loosen up the restrictions. Controversial question for you. Mm. Why is Glasgow not going down? The rest of the central belt is seeing a really steady decline. Glasgow has consistently not. They love their house parties. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was, that didn't, I, didn't expect, I didn't expect that one, Nathan, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. I, I, I really don't know. Um, I, I don't know if it's... You is know, it to do with poverty? Well, there obviously is a lot of that sort of um, inherent inequality. One of the things that I think is quite interesting is, you know, at the start of lockdown in March, we saw that um, that everyone in campaign that was about making sure that homeless people had somewhere to stay mm -hmm. and be safe from, from coronavirus. I don't think we've seen that this time. Um, I'd, I've, I've heard that we've not seen it in London. Um, I'd, I'd, I think that probably means we've not seen it in, in Scotland. You know, there is a, 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 an issue with um, homeless people in Glasgow, people who are using drugs and homeless and continued ongoing outbreak of HIV there. I think there's probably a, a, an inherent inequality around, um, around homeless people and, and coronavirus. I also think it comes down to work and the type of work that people might be forced or feel forced to have to mm -hmm. do in order that, um, that they, they make enough money to pay the bills and sometimes not mm -hmm. even pay the bills. Well, th that's the difference. You and I have jobs where we can mm -hmm. decide exactly where we want to do our jobs and if we want to go out or not go out yeah. and generally haven't been out whatsoever. So I think, but if you, if you have a job which is in the hospitality sector, if you have a job which, you know, is, isn't paying as well. Center, in a know, call centre. I know a lot of the call centres were, were bringing people back and it was a case of you come back into work or, or you can leave. Um, and that's, you know, call centres are a lot of people using a building, um, mm. but not just using that building, but they're then using transport links and they're walking about in the street and they're going for lunch. It's all, all of those things that increase the likelihood of you um, being in contact with someone. Um, and there's also, you know, that it is the digital divide because we've got this app that people can have on their phones is the everyone should have on their phones if yeah, they, they can should have absolutely it. have it on their phones protect scotland and never delete it or switch it off when you're and in if school you, and if you get a new phone you have to turn it back on again i learned this oh, oh really yes i did hmm. um but i do think yeah that it's you know it is is no no access to smartphones another issue you know do, do we have a, a responsibility when we're giving someone um, when we're giving the public a, an app, do we have a responsibility then to make sure that everyone in the country can have access to the technology that means they can also benefit from that app? Um, because, you know, that's, that's a, a debate that needs to be had if, you know, if this is a public health um, tool, then do we need to make sure that everyone, everyone has a smartphone? So let us take ourselves down to the big smoke down south at the bottom of this fair isle, which is London, where there's been a bit of drama going on um, in the heart of government behind those famous doors of number 10 Downing Street. Um, do you want to give us a rundown of the drama, Nathan? Yeah, well, I've not actually seen much of this drama oh. other, than, <laughs> other than I was aware the Prime Minister was looking to appoint a Chief of Staff. Um, and that was Did you apply? That was news because um, there, there hasn't been a chief of staff for Boris Johnson since he took over as prime minister. Dominic Cummings has been his chief advisor, but um, he's not had a chief of staff in, in a role. And so I thought that was quite a surprise. Then the person that was being pitched was obviously the number 10 director of communications, Lee Kane. Um, and then all of a sudden he's handing in his resignation. Mm. And in between that, 
Boris Johnson's girlfriend, Carrie Simmons, seems fiance. to have been fiance, mother of his chi- ch- child, um, seems to have been involved in bringing him down in some way. And I have no idea how or why. Well, I think one of the first things that people seem to forget is that Carrie Simmons is a political operator herself. Mm. So she's not just the wife or the future wife of the prime minister. You know, she was, I think, head of communications for the Conservative Party. Um, She obviously has strong opinions. And it sounds very much like her and a number of other people have very much went against the vote leave camp. And Lee Kane was very much alongside, you know, um, other people, um, was very much part of that vote leave camp. And the, the, the things that I'm sort of hearing from folk is that basically what happened was we had this showdown between two factions, mm. one which is like, comes from the vote leave um, campaign. Those are people that, that, you know, worked on that and then moved into Downing Street, led by Dominic Cummings, versus a sort of smaller faction within Downing Street, but supported significantly more by MPs outside of Downing Street mm. who um, haven't thought that things have went smoothly and been run well within government, um, think that the skills of governing and campaigning are very different and um, feel that the difference between, and this is something that I think I heard on the BBC and I thought was very smart, mm. and that basically are the difference between people who are about the project mm. rather than people who are about the prime minister and that that clash um, had been going on actually for some time. And this was Carrie Simmons really asserting her authority and saying that Lee Kane should not be getting promoted. Now, the real drama kicked off because Dominic Cummings, mm-hmm. who the prime minister has now went out to bat for a number of times and taken substantial political hints, hits, was yeah. on the verge of resignation. And I suppose what we don't know now is, he hasn't resigned as of yet, but what we don't know now is, what is the fallout from this? Is the departure of Lee, of Lee um, Kane the, the ascendancy of the pro-Boris, pro-traditional uh, conservatism faction? Or is it that the, the, this is the start of a rumbling battle that will continue on um, through inside of government? And is this the kind of stuff that really we need to be happening in the middle of a global pandemic. Well, is it the kind of stuff that people care about happening in the middle of a global pandemic? Because, you know, this is all being played out in the media um, and journalists are frothing at the mouth to be the first one to get a source. And I always think, do people care? Like, there, there is some, I, I think you, you've, you've done it better than I've seen on social media anyway. Uh, pointing out what some of the ramifications might be or what the impact might be on things like, you know, governing. Um, But it seems to be driven by personality and, you know, who Laura Koonsberg can speak to first to Mm. get that that bit of gossip. Um, And I think that people don't really care. So I think I I agree. So I I kind of agree and don't agree. So I I agree that... um, that actually a lot of this is driven by personality and a lot of it is about Dominic Cummings actually, not yeah. about Lee Kane. And yeah. it's about him being such a high profile public figure. I'd never it? actually heard of Lee Kane until right. yesterday. I, I barely registered who he was. Yeah. And the, the thing that stands out to me is I always remember the thing that Alistair Darling said, which is that when you are the advisor and you are consistently becoming the story, you need to go. And he says that's why he resigned mm-hmm. from the Blair government because the story was consistently becoming about him, not his ability to manage the situation and i I think there's something very telling about that and i think it's something that the prime minister should do whether people care or not i'd almost go and say it doesn't matter whether they care or not what matters is that this does matter Mm. so it matters who is driving government forward and we know like let's be honest we know that people love boris johnson because they see him as someone that they can impart their own values onto their own agendas onto and who is persuadable he is someone who will take up a mantle and go with it even if he didn't come up with it himself so the people that he is listening to and engaging with matter mm. a lot and i think that's why it's really important to 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 get to the source of it i think we all get excited by the drama and sort of the melodrama of it but the real question is that will the government become more competent out of this or not um and i don't think we know the answer to that but 
the fact that they're having such, you know, I, I think that the Prime Minister was meeting with Dominic Cummings at, I think, 9pm last night, mm. you know, like going into the evening, arguing, sources were coming out saying that he was furious, that voices were raised. Mm. Like, it's, it's, it's raised drama. Voices. I know, right? Like, like, we would never raise a voice. <laughs> Staying with Westminster for a bit, um, mm. Tracy Crouch um, had quite a good um, a good statement today because um, she's been um, at home recovering um, and being treated for breast cancer, and there was a debate in the Commons um, about breast cancer. Great, she'll have lots of lived experience to talk to everyone about. You would think that that would be a great opportunity to utilise the hybrid Parliament that we have been so used to and apparently not um that um ability has been removed um from um mps they're they they were were not able to to join apparently on what grounds and jacob reese mogg not being a fan of the virtual parliament um that um, man is the worst (laughs) like oh it's like some sort of victorian and and Tracy, you know Tracy, who is a former sports minister for the Conservatives, has rightly said that she was disappointed that she wasn't able to to partake in a debate. Probably, you know, as often MPs who have been suffering from from serious um, health issues come and praise their health team because the NHS doesn't get enough praise. Um, but she's been um, accused of shirking her duties because she can't. Um, she can't. Who's accused her of that? Because I'll punch him in the face. Well, she said it didn't mean that they were shirking her duty. So I imagine that she's been told that, probably tweeted at it at her because that's where a lot of this um, a, a lot of this hate comes from. It's outrageous. Um, but you know this. The, why we, everyone else is able to work from home? Why can't MPs? We, we, well, we kind of know why. It's because Boris Johnson doesn't like an empty House of Commons. He mm. likes the rabble rousing. He he was very nervous going up against Keir Starmer when there was less than ten people behind him. Um, but Jacob Rees-Mogg has said there was a there needed to be a balance between the needs of MPs and the needs of the House as a whole. Do you know what you're a hundred percent like? So that is ridiculous. Uh, the MPs are the House as a whole, but the the second the second the the thing that you said there, I thought was really interesting, was you're a hundred percent right because when the House was basically empty mm-hmm. and it was just Boris versus Keir, like it actually became a discussion. It became yeah. a discussion about detail and detailed policy that Boris couldn't have. Yeah. He couldn't engage in that level of discussion. He needs the brawing. Um, chorus behind him. But I, I honestly think, though, that kind of position from Jacob Rees-Mogg is both, you know, it, it, is, it is awful and it's ridiculous. It's actually dangerous, though, as well. It sends the wrong message to the general public. It, it encourages people to feel bad for being off work because they're sick. It doesn't support flexible working. Like, it is... I'd, like, whether you support the Conservative Party or not, I just... How can you support someone who puts his idiosyncratic views ahead of the health and safety of the people that he's meant to be working yeah, with. We're no longer living in 1970. It's 2020. Yeah. Or 1870. 20, yeah, soon to be 2021. Um, and it feels like um, there should be some form of give. I mean, a hybrid parliament is exactly what you want, surely. Totally. And it's worked. It's not even just like, oh, this is a fanciful idea that someone's had. Oh, maybe we'll have to try it one day. No, we've had it. And it's worked really successfully. You know, I, I think it's, yeah, it's just ridiculous. But before we finish, Nathan, can we stay in Westminster? So it's a very Westminster-focused episode, this one. Um, because I think we should talk very briefly about the Secretary of State for Scotland, oh, yeah. Alistair Jack's comments. Um, don't look, you're rolling your eyes at him now. That's better than rolling your eyes at me. So, um, Alistair Jack is the Secretary of State of Scotland. People might not know that. And he, um, in an interview, I don't know who the interview was with actually, in an interview said that a generation was 40 years. So, once in a generation means that in 40 years' time, there can be a second independent referendum and not before. So, since then, he has backtracked significantly and said that he was joking. Um, well, he wasn't laughing when he said it. Jocular, he said Jocular. it. Jocular. Jocular. Oh, that sounds quite popular. Which, which I, was, I, I wasn't sure if 
if he meant joking or if it was one of those sort of down the pub with the jocks type comp, like very strange very strange <laughs> very odd um but what's what's interesting about this is this has kicked a lot of flurry into action because we then had john major former prime minister um giving a very in-depth if slightly odd speech i would say personally i i'm not sure oh actually i'd be interested to know your thoughts so john major basically said that you can't put this back into the bottle. He's a Democrat like me. If the people of Scotland vote for the majority of pro-independence parties, then we, you, know, you have to deal with this. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. But the way that you should deal with it should be through learning through the Brexit one. And there should be two independence referendums. The first one should be on principle to have one. And then the second one should basically be a confirmatory referendum based on the negotiating deal that was agreed between the Scottish governments and the UK government. Um, what, what do you think of that, Nathan? Um, I think this is a bit of the challenge with some people backing a confirmatory referendum for the EU um, right. and Brexit. That then this leads this leads into this. You know, nev- you know, this this is really the conversation about never endums, not wanting to have a referendum when public opinions changed actually it's like oh how many referendums do we need to settle on a decision um mm. i think the problem with i think you know from a english perspective or a conservative perspective john major's point is probably quite valid um the ability to have a referendum on the outcome of negotiations is really helpful to the party that feels like it might be losing something um, because it could rightly, or well, not rightly, but it could argue that that the deal was terrible. Um, and that would be the argument for a no vote, was that actually this negotiation is terrible for Scotland and it's better to be part of the, the UK, regardless of whether that vote or negotiation is, is terrible. But the, the problem with that, though, is you, like, if you're Scotland, you can't mm. really enter into that agreement because yeah. it presumes like everyone is going to be, you know, being really good and really nice and like, oh, yeah. we're, we're totally being fair. Where actually it's an incentive for the other party in the negotiation. To give you a lot. To, well, to, not be, to not even be reasonable. Yeah. Like it's an incentive to be as unreasonable and difficult as you possibly can, which isn't, isn't a good ground for a negotiation or a referendum of, of equal partners. No. So on, I, I, I think in theory, it sounds like it's sensible. But it's actually why, like, it's why both a confirmatory referendum of both the EU deal and of a Scottish independence deal in reality doesn't work because it only works as everyone is being like a good partner. And, and that's not how the real world works. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And, you know, there's, there's a number of challenges. Obviously, you know, the SNP are calling for another referendum six, six years on because there has been a significant change in the, in, in, in the actual you know, law of the country um, and public opinion. Those things could happen six years after an independence vote. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is democracy. Um, but having, yeah, I, I think it puts, it puts the, the negotiating partners in, in a really bad position to then be having a vote on a negotiation. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's that we need a negotiation to happen um, well, then you bring in international mediators. You know, you bring in the president of the United States to mediate a negotiation on Scottish independence, um, reg- rather than 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 having a, a confirmatory vote on on whatever the negotiation is. I, I think that the fact that we're starting to see people like John Major even talk about there being another referendum is is a, is a move forward it's certainly a move more forward than alistair jack saying well well there's going to be 40 years they're freaking out i think that's the thing that there is but a... they're freaking out because refusing to allow a referendum and this is nicholas sturgeon's strategy and there are a small number of people that don't support this strategy in the smp um but ultimately this is the strategy that will win because when public opinion shifts so dramatically as it will if the Conservatives refuse and refuse and refuse to grant a referendum. Now, ultimately, you know, I don't think a formal request for a referendum has even gone in yet. I think this has all been hypothetical 
um, all been hypothetical conversations and the Conservatives have said, no, there won't be one for another generation. Um, when it comes to the point that the Scottish Government send a formal request for to hold a referendum, saying no to that is, you know, is career-ending in, when, in, when it comes to, to politics. Douglas well, Ross would lose his career. The Conservatives well, in Scotland would, would lose. I'd, I'd only under certain... So I'm not sure if I agree with you, because only under certain circumstances, only under the circumstances where two things were valid. One, that the majority in the Scottish Parliament was pro-independence. Which so is I, already. Which, yep. Yeah, and two, that, uh, impartial, Nathan, and two... <laughs> Um, that the majority of people within Scotland wanted a referendum. So there's sort of a, a double which lock are, there. Currently, the two parts, which, you know, are... are which is why are my right. opinion is that if people want to have a referendum, then they should have, to have a referendum. I, I think that now we're this far along, you need to wait for the election. Yeah, but absolutely. If, I, I think that's that's the key point here, is that, you know, we it, it's, almost, it's, it's almost a triple lock, actually. Mm. It's that there has been another vote. Um, and then those two things, as you've mentioned, come true. Um, and I think that that's, that's Nicola Sturgeon's point of view. Um, that's what she wants to happen. Men, some, I would say many, but it's not many. It's a, a Twitter noise of some voters that think, well, they've got a mandate already and they should just go for it. Four people in a sheep. That's like... not how politics works. And when, when the electorate and, and public opinion is what you need to win over, mm. then doing it by the skin of your teeth isn't, isn't good enough. And we've seen that with Brexit. Actually, only winning by four points doesn't make a great country and a great decision. We, we, we would want, I think, Scotland would want an independent result of over 60% for it to be a resounding, you know, yes vote, having come from a resounding vote for independent supporting parties in a Scottish Parliament election where a referendum is being promised. What if that's the deal? What if the deal is you can have a referendum, but this is a big decision. It can't be by the skin of the teeth. It's, you know, we'll have ramifications for hundreds of years. You has to win it by at least 60% of the vote. Um... Yeah, that I, I think if if something like Brexit and that had been that had done and there was precedent, you know, there is precedent in that because the Conservatives changed the rules around referendums when the Scottish um, devolution referendum happened in, in 1979. Um, I think if it had, if if that had continued to be, you know, a reasonable um, consideration, um, and and the Brexit vote had that same restriction then i would agree with you and say yes okay let's do that um i think that it's not so much that it needs to be you know for the purposes of democracy i think the smp and the scottish government would want a resounding result so that they they feel like they've taken public opinion with them during a campaign it, it, it's important. would you take the deal if the deal was you can have it with 60 percent of the vote if that's not, if you don't agree to that then you can't have it well, I think one of the points to consider is when the SNP um, negotiated a referendum in um, 2012, the Edinburgh Agreement, um, they were, they were, independence was at around 25 to 30% of the vote. Um, and they managed to, to step that up with a campaign up to 45%. If at the moment, um, the independence argument is around 50 to 58%, think about adding another 15% onto that. Um, and um, so you would take it. A, a, a risky person would consider it. I'm not sure if I agree it's democratic, but um, I think I, it's democratic. I, I, like, I think, think it's possible. Yeah, I, I think it's. I, I think it's a. If I if I was down south and I was Boris Johnson, I, I think it's what I would be considering. Um, and I think what I would also be considering is like federalism and other things as well just but we're gonna to have to wrap up but just mm. a couple of other things that they've been talking about and um, just to sort of float float the boat as they as we mm. say is uh, <laughs> is um they've been talking about whether they should have a snap a, a snap referendum so if the scottish government were to to get in the majority have it within six months that's and, what's going to happen it's it's oh. not going to be a two-year no, please not. Um, it's not going to be a two-year referendum. No, um, be bothered with that, right? Absolutely going to be a 
six month lead in time. They're 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 not going to do that. You know the 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 yes campaign peaked too soon um last time um if if it had peaked a, a week later then yes probably would have won um i think that you know there will be a a, a real desire for this to be a short sharp um referendum campaign but that means on all sides you with like campaigns need to be ready need to have a an argument and i would say you know, from someone from from the yes side, in in the past, that our, that message goes out to to the no side as well. Like, if if we want to have a, a, a well, they don't want to have a referendum, but if if you can take that a referendum is inevitable, then there needs to be a plan for um, winning over people on on either side. That's not just about you know this the project fear as Joe Pike's book um, was titled. Joe's book was titled Project mm. Fear. We should get Joe on too. here. We both we know Joe. We should get Joe Pike on. Yeah, that okay. would be wonderful. Um, okay, shall we? Shall we wrap it up? Before we wrap up, can I just say because I'm not superstitious, but there is 40 minutes to go before um, Scotland play Serbia in their Euro. Um, playoff qualifying game which could see Scotland get to their first tournament since 1998 great so come on the tartan army yeah why do you hate Scotland Nick I don't I love Scotland I'm just not that into football <laughs> but like I'm not that into football either <laughs> but come on like when when the country's about to you know get into the Euro 2020 which will be played in 2021 <laughs> No, good luck to good luck to the Scotland team. I hope I hope they win. Um, but then and also this... good luck to Serbia because I'm sure they're lovely people too. Okay, that's that not how this works. Okay, thank you very much for listening uh, to a new nation discussing the ideas that matter. If you've got any suggestions for topics that you want to cover or um, any guests that you'd like to hear or see on our podcast, please do get in touch. Uh, we are on Twitter, a new nation pod, or you can follow me, Nathan Sparkling, on Twitter, or Nick M. Ward um, on Twitter as well. Uh, we're on Facebook, um, Instagram, YouTube, and email us too. It's like, it's like half the podcast is just listing the social medias. <laughs> give us a follow, give us a like, subscribe, and we hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Cheerio! Chat to you next week. Bye, everyone.